You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Future of Pharmacy Podcast, featuring the innovators transforming medication management. The Future of Pharmacy Podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. Now here's our host, Ken Perez. Welcome to the Future of Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Ken Perez, OmniCell's Vice President of Healthcare Policy and Government Affairs, and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us today. We're very excited that you found us and ask that you subscribe to our monthly podcast. Today's discussion focuses on the use of compounding automation to help increase the safety of IV products in our hospitals. Patient harm caused by compounded medications has been the focus of media, medical, and legislative attention in recent years, especially following the September 2012 outbreak of fungal meningitis caused by contaminated steroid injections compounded at the New England Compounding Center Pharmacy in Framingham, Massachusetts. That tragedy sickened some 800 people across several states. By minimizing human involvement in sterile compounding, IV robotics produce accurate final products that reduce the risk of microbial contamination. On today's podcast, we'll learn how Moses Cone Memorial Hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina, is leveraging IV automation to ensure the highest quality and safety of the compounded sterile preparations they provide to patients. Joining me today to discuss this topic is an expert on hospital and health system IV compounding, Kevin Hansen, Assistant Director of Pharmacy, Moses H. Cone Memorial Hospital. Kevin, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. It's great to have you. So Kevin, please tell us about yourself and your background in the area of hospital and health system IV compounding. Absolutely. So I actually got started in hospital and health system, specifically IV compounding, as a compounding pharmacy technician. It was my very first job in pharmacy. And I remember day one of of seeing this, uh, this, you know, uh, clean room, this ominous area and just have grown this interest and passion and curiosity of what happened in this clean room. That curiosity has really driven my passion in this area and has brought me to becoming a pharmacist and going to pharmacy school, of course, and then going through and actually completing a a residency program. So completing a health system, pharmacy administration and leadership residency program, coupled with a master's degree focused on pharmacy administration. Within that that program, I had the opportunity of staffing as a pharmacist in the clean room. So getting to see the other side of verifying these products that are being compounded And in my second year of being a a new practitioner leader of actually overseeing a non-sterile and a high-risk compounding division at an academic center. And now with the completion of that, of stepping foot here at Moses Cone Memorial Hospital, of now having the ability to lead both the clinical and operational oversight over a multi-hospital health system that does sterile compounding, non-sterile compounding, hazardous drug handling, and the like. So that's kind of me in a nutshell and what I'm going to be uh, kind of helping to talk about today. Well, you have a terrific hands-on resume and experience, so that's fantastic. So let's talk about Moses Cone Hospital and the IV compounding operations at that hospital. Tell us more about that. Moses Cone Hospital is the flagship hospital of a larger health system called Cone Health. It's comprised of over 1,200 acute care beds 
surrounding in the Greensboro and greater region here. We are also an accountable care organization. So it's comprised of acute care hospitals, cancer centers, outpatient pharmacies, surgical centers, standalone emergency rooms, physician clinics, specialty clinics, outpatient pharmacies. And so that's what uh, makes part of my job very fun is that there's a lot of opportunities in different practice settings where compounds need to occur to get to the patients for various treatments. One of the unique things about the health system and why I really enjoy my practice setting of all of what I just described is within about a 25 minute radius of central Greensboro here in North Carolina. And so it's really allowed us to do centralization of various efforts. And we'll talk more about leveraging IV compounding automation to assist with some centralization as well. And so it's, it's really been a great practice setting um, here to ensure that we have not really meeting the minimum standards, but how can we focus on best practices and have that standardized across our, our sites and all the practices. Well, that's quite an enterprise you have there. So what were the main drivers for implementing IV automation at Moses Cone? What were the things that motivated? Great question. I remember the day going back, investing heavily into the ready-to-administer syringe in the perioperative setting. That was a, a project we started many, many years ago of really thinking about the safety. Um, ISMP speaks about the safety of ready-to-administer and ready-to-use products uh, compared to compounds the efficiencies that can be a gain in the perioperative space, the reduction of waste, especially for these drugs that are only used in emergency use, um, helping with compliance. So you're not having to do bedside compounding and having to do with the labeling and the, and the one hour beyond use states. So we, we really saw the benefits of ready to administer syringes and we invested heavily into that. Well, to meet that at the time, many of these syringes were not commercially available through an FDA manufacturer. And so we had to rely on 503B outsourcing pharmacy facilities to provide these preparations. And as we know with these 503B outsourcing facilities is the number of them that remains on the market has remained pretty stagnant. So today there are 74 of them, and that's been relatively unchanged uh, since the, the introduction many, many years ago. And so what had been occurring is as we continue to increase our ready-to-administer syringe profile is 503Bs are not able to keep up with the demand. And so that can be very problematic from an operational perspective because at the end of the day, I'm left with taking care of our patients, right? And so if we didn't get our shipment of the ready-to-administer syringe, uh, we would have to then figure out what's our backup plan. Let's go out to the automated dispensing cabinets and swap it out for a vial, or maybe it's even an alternative medication in some cases. And that's not, that's not best for the patient. And, and it really is all centered on the patient. Those ready-to-administer syringes are the safest products that uh, need to be there that we need to dispense. And so it got us to really thinking, it's like, well, we don't really have a supply chain issue with these sterile FDA conventionally manufactured ingredients used and really repackaging into these syringes. Um, it's more the supply chain from the 503B side. And um, with some of our ventures of actually going out when we audit these 503B compounding pharmacies and see their practices, we, we actually saw that a lot of them are very manual based in their compounding. While they still practice under CGMP, the methods of preparation are still very manual. And it really gave us a thought of, could we do it better? Could we use separative technologies? Could we use automation to take these sterile injectables that you know FDA approved and repackage them into a better form than a vial that won't require bedside preparation? And that was really the launching pad for us into IV robotics and automation. And now we're a couple of years in to having these technologies. And I can say for some of the medications before that we had to switch between the vial and the syringe and back to the vial, 
we have not had those disruptions since we've been able to do this. And obviously, we'll probably delve deeper into talking about what are some of those sterility assurance benefits seen with an IV automation and an IV robot compared to some of those manual preparations. How do you determine which medications to compound with the IV robots? So there's a couple things. It really started with looking at patient value. And we saw patient value of, yes, of course, having these ready to administer syringes and having that really as a safety benefit and quality and safety are usually in the numerator of your value equation. What really drives the value is through cost reduction. And so that was something that we really needed to position well to our C-suite. Now, while the cost reduction strategy was not our main driver, it was essential because we needed to, A, pay for the technology and recognize the quality and safety benefits that it brings to to our patients. And so it required us to have a very targeted approach of looking at what is, you know, what are all the things that we would maybe consider running on the robot? Let's let's come up with that wish list and then let's kind of work backwards and say, well, why would we need to prepare each of these? And so first and foremost, if there's an FDA conventionally manufactured premix on the market, we're just going to go ahead and use that. We're not going to prepare those, you know, essentially copies. You can get into all of the the, the specific regulations with that. So we went ahead and just invested heavily into FDA premixes. So that was the first cut. The next cut was then looking at kind of categorizing them is, are we trying to maybe replace a 503B preparation that we currently purchased from a 503B so we can stabilize the supply chain? That was bucket one. Bucket two is, is there a way that we can take a large bulk vial for a medication and aliquot it into smaller amounts where appropriate. And the last was in drug shortage assistance. Um, you know, if a premix does go on shortage, as we know, sterile injectables are highly prone to that in today's world. And then the last one really was then looking at, could we decompress some of the volume off of our main cleaner for those either those anticipatory batched um, or even patient specific ones to help improve that? And so no one category really met the overall needs of the program. So we had to have a balanced, uh, you know, I call it of looking at your pie chart of the products you're running. You had to have some of the, the protocols on there. They had to pay the bills, right? They had to pay for the program. They have to pay for that. So a lot of those is through those 503B outsourcing uh, replacements. Um, you know, decompressing the, the main cleaner was really not a big cost savings, but we really felt that it was a safe piece because then you're increasing your attention for your existing staff that you have in your cleaner, right? The goal is not ever to decrease staff and, and really robots in the current you know setting with the efficiency really aren't designed to do that. I think it's a, a careful balance knowing what are the goals of your program and ensuring that you are fiscally responsible and are having something that it can quote unquote pay the bills, pay for the program, and then start to see some of the benefits with the additional uh, availability on the robots. So that's largely was our approach and is still the approach that we have today. Now I can say that we are always evaluating our protocols and saying, are these the right drugs to run today? Uh, we know with drug shortages um, continuing to loom is do we stop making something so it would free up some capacity so we can make something else. So that is really in a constant evolving conversation within our organization. Well, the framework you described is really tremendous. I was noticing that you have a bunch of criteria, you have principles, and then give this dynamic element. So that's fantastic. Share with us some of the benefits that you and your team and Moses Cohn realized from incorporating IV automation into your compounding operation. What are the benefits? It's been really great in interfacing with our anesthesia colleagues. 
and seeing how they're able to turn the rooms over faster, how they're able to have medications available when they need them. That's been really a a very successful program from their eyes. And they're the ones who are the hands-on directly taking care of these patients. And so really working closely with them. You know, we even ask, hey, what's on your wish list? Are there items that we don't offer today that we can look into doing performing stability indicating assays and other quality tests and see if it's something that a robot can run. And so it's it's really, really helped in the front of our perioperative services space. And as mentioned previously, is minimizing or even eliminating some of those supply chain disruptions of, well, we were waiting on a shipment from a 503B and it didn't show. Here we have the vials or now you have to compound at the bedside. And so we've been able to to in many cases completely eliminate that um, for these uh, for these preparations. From a cost savings perspective, obviously that has been um, a benefit. When you look at the overall inputs of the program and then the cost savings that ensue with that, I think that's really important. It does require obviously careful balance in, in looking at your data. So you're not underproducing, which will lead to a stock out or overproducing, which will lead to, to waste. And so it's, it's a program that needs to be constantly monitored and tweaked and adjusted and, and really having your dashboard that can tell you, you know, kind of where things are, what adjustments are needed. And so we've, we've really recognized the benefits and in some ways. And, you know, I kind of joke with our team is that it's been so successful that anytime a drug shortage conversation comes up, it's, Hey, Kevin, can your robot make this for us? Right. And, you know, I welcome those conversations. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's largely why we initially started with two robots in our operation and we have expanded to three robots. It's been because not only have we seen the benefits from a compounding side our and our patient side and our finance side, but really from our drug shortage side. Uh, It's been uh, really essential to step in. We've been through the pandemic uh, and increasing of many of the ICU infusions. Um, Our our robots have been instrumental in helping us through some of those crises. You're listening to the Future of Pharmacy podcast. I'm Ken Perez, your host, speaking with special guest, Kevin Hansen. Kevin, the most cited challenge by more than 600 respondents to an October 2020 ISMP survey on IV sterile compounding in pharmacies was the inability of a pharmacist to accurately verify prepared compounded sterile products if using an indirect process, such as the syringe pullback method. In addition, the inability to purchase and utilize sterile compounding technologies, such as cameras, workflow systems, gravimetrics, and barcoding technology, were mentioned in the survey comments. Why do you think pharmacies struggle to procure and implement these life-saving technologies? Excellent question. And really, I'll even take a step back to answer this question and compare it to something different that I think will help to state this point is going to the grocery store and having to go through the self-checkout. You have this device that is there that has barcoding. It has scales, which can be seen as gravimetric. In some cases, it has two scales as you're placing it on to to weigh your apples and then placing it into the bag and then weighing it there. There's RFID or wireless technologies for payment. There's sometimes even video recording. The technology is there and it's been there. Some of the things, you know, in your question is why are pharmacies struggling to do this? And really, from my opinion, some of it is change. It's a big practice change. But I think, too, is recognizing and seeing the benefits. So many pharmacists, or probably all pharmacists, are very type A. They're very science-driven. Uh, they, they want to uh, make changes that are based in, in really well-defined science and really defined evidence. And one of the challenges that we have in the space of sterile compounding in the 503A state licensed facilities 
is that much of what we do is risk-based compounding. So we, we hear that a lot of, you know, show me the evidence, show me the, show me the data. And pharmacists, from my perspective, sometimes struggle thinking in risk-based terms, even embedded into our standards of USP 797. And the current standard, we see certain conditions equating to low risk and medium risk and high risk and associated beyond use date limits to that. And that sometimes can be a struggle. Now, if you were a pharmacist on the industry side, you may really start to think like this. In a lot of ways, it's no longer a checklist of, hey, you need this, this, and this to have a safe and effective process or products. You need to design it and you need to prove that your design works and you need to continuously audit it and monitor it. Um, and so, so I think some of it is a level of thinking. Further, and really where I've delved a lot of my attention and focus in is how do we take this from today, which is really viewed as a best practice, right? People view compounding technology as, well, it's, it's, a, it's a nice to have. It's a costly piece of equipment. It's not required. And so it's just the best practice. How do we take that current setting from a standard perspective and turn it into this really should be the minimum expectation? This should be standard practice. And that takes time, of course, just thinking even the, the grocery store when the self checkouts went in, you probably remember when your local grocery store first had one come in, you probably were like, eh, I don't know about that. You probably avoided it. You probably went to the normal checkout. Then you see the long lines, you're like, all right, I'm going to give it a try. And you're like, oh, this is pretty good, you know, pretty easy. There's this change management curve. You have folks that are the early adopters. You have folks that are the laggards, right? They're looking for what other people are doing. They're the folks that are going to re constantly remain skeptical. But at the end of the day, it's like it's always a careful balance. And we need all of those folks to continue to improve on these types of technologies. So I think we're in that swing right now. And we're, we're starting to see more hospitals adopt this as the laggards from the change curve that we see. And I'm hopeful that will continue certainly to take off. But uh, again, from, from my perspective, is how can we, we change the viewpoint of these as best practice and have it as standard practice? So if we think about using a barcode scanner to administer a medication to a patient in a hospital, BCMA, barcode med administration. If you talk to one of your nursing colleagues, they would say that is minimum standard, you know, minimum practice. It's not best practice, it's, it's required. And most hospitals are tracking their percent compliance and audited against that. We don't have that in pharmacy. When it comes to compounding, a barcode has existed for how long? Your hospital gift shop is likely barcoding a pack of bubble gum when you're checking out. How do we change that, that viewpoint of even the simple of a barcode, which can be life-saving and have that the same thing? So working with Mark Neuenschwander, really the father of barcodes, as I like to call him, is terming this BCMP of barcode med preparation. Just like nurses have BCMA, how do we create BCMP for pharmacy and have that, this needs to be the bare minimum standard across the board, um, that, that we all need at a minimum, a barcode scanner in compounding to ensure that at a minimum, you're using the, the appropriate intended ingredients. I think that's really, you know, um, probably a place to start, right? As uh, you know, you mentioned where pharmacies struggle. I think they look at it as dichotomous. It's either they need all of it. They need all the technology, the robots, the IV workflow, the cameras. They need all of it or none of it. And, and I think for some is maybe view it as, as, a, as a stepping stool and a ladder to say, all right, where, where's, my, where's my organization at today? What, what form of technology and automation and, and safety do we have? And if the answer is none, start with your barcode scanner. Get that into play. 
because that's going to provide you immediate safety benefits in there. And then what's next? Well, maybe it's how to completely eliminate the syringe pullback method. And you could do that with cameras. And then, all right, how do we improve on our pediatric and oncology-based medications to ensure that we have accurate doses? Well, you'll have gravimetrics. And I see it as a continuum rather as a, as a dichotomous. And so largely that that's what I hope to do and sharing my story and you know these types of podcasts and, and getting out there and helping pharmacists kind of see that. Well, that journey is very helpful. So thanks for sharing that. So Kevin, you're well known across the country and even um, around the world as an expert in sterile compounding and have been asked to sit on several expert committees on IV compounding. Can you give us some insight as to what updates we might see from organizations such as ISMP and ASHP regarding IV compounding practice guidelines? Absolutely. So the first one you mentioned, ISMP, Institute of Safe Medication Practices. And so ISMP gets it. Back in their sterile compounding guidelines, we we have mentions of these types of technologies. And um, well, while certainly they're not a necessarily a standard setting organization or a regulatory authority, through their releasing of these guidelines, you, you you can see that that they get it and they see those benefits in encouraging folks to to adopt this. But some of those guidelines have been uh, a few years since they've been uh, published. What you're seeing is there was recently a summit, and ISMP is focused on on revising those sterile compounding guidelines. And 100% of the focus was on use of technology and automation. So several experts from across the nation in this setting, in addition to learning more from the vendors and what they have and even pushing them on what can be in the future. And that's largely likely what we're going to see in that release, which I believe is going to come out early in 2022. Further with ASHP, ASHP has many different fronts of where they're working. Of course, they have sterile compounding guidelines as well, which I believe will be revised once the the new standards of 795 and 797 are official. But also in the background in working is these sections advisory groups. A few years ago, we were actually working with ASHP on creating the first section advisory group that's focused on compounding practice. So in the prior setting, there were many section advisory groups talking about sterile compounding. Maybe you could imagine if it was a drug shortage one, of course, you're going to be talking about it. And clinical, you know, it even comes up as well. But there wasn't a sole group focused on that discussion. And so we worked with ASHP to get that created. And it's been a very successful uh, section advisory group. And the core tenet of those is, is how do we create, of course, educational material, but really resources, which becomes really important. As one observation is, you know, when we have a shortage of a sterile injectable and, and it needs to be compounded is when that occurs, it's like every director and compounding leader across the nation is all working on the same thing. They're all trying to solve the same problem. And so one of the neat things that we've seen with the ASHP section advisory group on compounding practice is how can this group of compounding experts from all over the nation go ahead and do that work up front and then share those with ASHP members and, and put that out there? And so that's been very successful. If you recall back to Hurricane Maria and all the shortages of all the fluids, of ASHP was on the forefront of getting that information out and saying, hey, sterile water is on shortage. Here's what you can do. Uh, mini bags are on shortage. Here's what you can do. And so I, I think that becomes really important. I think with the velocity of what's happening in our current environment, right? There's a lot going on. You're seeing guidance documents and draft form from FDA. You're seeing, you know, drug shortages. You're seeing all of these types of things that are going on is how do you stay on the forefront of that? One thing I recommend is the ASHP Connect community. Those are, are areas where folks can post questions of current events and things that are going on. People can share policies 
that's been tremendous. It hits my inbox every morning and I review it every morning and, you know, see if there are other compounding related questions that I can help answer that our SAG can help answer. It's really been tremendous, but likely if you're in your organization having a sterile compounding problem, I, I can almost guarantee you it, there's, there's a discussion and thread within ASHP uh, Connect um, on that very topic. And so um, definitely keep your, your eyes and ears open for that and, and continue to participate as we can learn from each other and, and the struggles that we're having. Um, with drug shortages, sometimes we see that it impacts certain areas of the nation quicker than others. And so, you know, um, some with this saline flush shortage, for example, were impacted very, very early on and started, you know, uh, cons conservation strategies and mitigation strategies and putting things in place in other parts of the nation were like, we have plenty, we have no issues getting it. And then several, you know, weeks to months later, they're, they're in a similar situation. Um, and so uh, definitely keeping, keeping an eye out for those types of posts and just staying on top of the current events because the velocity of change in our current setting is very high. Kevin, you know, sterile compounding is obviously a very complex process and especially niche in pharmacy practice that you have dedicated your career. Can you explain your passion for this niche of pharmacy? I think you shared a little bit about your own experience and being in the trenches in the early days. And so what's really driving you from a passion standpoint? Yeah, great question. Really, from my perspective, you know, when I went through pharmacy school and got to see all the things that pharmacists can do in the profession and, and everything just brought me back to compounding is like the meat and potatoes of pharmacy. You know, that's where we started. That's where I feel like we can offer, you know, some of the best benefit, because if it weren't for pharmacy, who else in your organization has that level of knowledge and experience? We, we went back to in the in the 70s when nurses, you know, did a lot of this sterile compounding. And there's some great literature that showed that, hey, in the absence of <laughs> pharmacy involvement and clean rooms and all of the things that we have today, there's a lot of patient harm that can happen. You know, concentrated potassium chloride being added to large volume fluids at the bedside. There's all of those types of practices we look back today and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that ever occurred. And largely it's because pharmacy and our level of expertise have gotten involved in, and made those practices more safe. I think that's really important. And, and even through this pandemic, it came down to who is essential workers and who are not essential workers. I think we probably all see ourselves as essential workers, of course, and every day we're in patient care. When it came to compounding, it, there was no question. We are essential. We are needed. Patients need these medications, especially in these acute care environments for these sterile injectables. Um, we are needed. And, and so that's really where a lot of my passion comes from is, is I, I know that I'm making a direct impact on patients' lives and also with our involvements of our pharmacy technician and seeing their career growth and their career trajectory um, I have a large passion for uh, pharmacy technician development as that's where I started my pharmacy career. Um, so really it's the perfect accumulation of, of all of the above. And it's really what has kept me focused and engaged uh, on this work moving forward. You're listening to the Future of Pharmacy podcast. I'm Ken Perez, your host, speaking with special guest, Kevin Hansen. Kevin, please comment on the work to be done. Let's talk about the future. What's the work to be done to improve IV compounding practices in our pharmacies? and to promote the safe use of IV automation as best and standard practice in health system pharmacies for preparing compounded sterile products. What needs to be done going forward? I think it, in some ways, we need a clean reset. <laughs> we need to find the reset button and we need to really look at what are our priorities and what are we trying to achieve here? 
if there were FDA conventionally manufactured products for every patient need, we wouldn't need to compound. In many ways, if I don't need to compound, I'm happy to not compound something because I know those CGMP manufactured preparations or products are safer, but that is not the reality. Now, we are seeing more and more availability of these types of medications being offered by FDA manufacturers, and, and I hope that continues. But in the interim, there will always exist a need for sterile compounding. And so I think in knowing that and knowing it's not going away, and in some cases with these drug shortages, which has you know, fortunately or unfortunately become a staple, it's our, part of our everyday here in the acute care setting, is we sometimes are pressed and challenged for certain things. And it's like, how are we going to do this in a safe way? So I think when people think about IV automation and technology, they may be thinking about their workload today. Oh, we get about X number of patient-specific orders. We batch about X number. You know, we look at our error rates and we're doing okay. But I think what I'd advise folks to think about as we think about in the future is what happens when something would be completely unavailable. And even today we're being experienced with this. IV flush syringes, sodium chloride flush syringes. Um, many organizations use hundreds of thousands to millions of these syringes in their organizations, right? And of course, be, you know, because of those volumes, we, we need to get those products from an FDA manufacturer or 503B outsourcer. But what if they can't provide it? What if you're not a current customer and they're not taking you on? So at the end of the day, we are left to take care of our patients. And so I think with that, that's, that's kind of my viewpoint is we want to make sure that when we're, if, we, if and when we are put in those positions, that we have the safest way to, to perform those. And that largely is with IV automation and the types of technologies are here. We can look at the compounding tragedies of the past, you know, and, and anyone is naive if they think those things could not happen at their organization. And I think Mike Cohen and ISMP said it best is so many folks, you know, don't let the adverse experience of others, you know, think that it doesn't apply to them. We have to learn from those mistakes. And then, like I said, a barcode scanner can save a life in the cleaner. And so we need, we need that reset button. We need that shift of focus. Now, at the same time, there's also a balance. We need to make sure that we're doing things fiscally responsibly and really understanding the value equation and what each of those things bring. So I think that's going to be essential and it's going to be important. Now, those same demands on the pharmacy side, I think, are also on the manufacturers of many of these compounding technologies and automation as well. How can we improve the reliability? How can we improve the efficiency? How can we continue to adapt it? And we've seen what IV robots can do today, but what does that next generation look like? How can that help to solve some of the issues that are there and to solve some of those gaps so they can be more attainable? So several surveys done by the pharmacy purchasing and products, and you can see that a lot of these IV robots are in the larger hospitals. So what about the majority of hospitals, which are the smaller community-based hospitals? How do we make technology attainable for these groups and things that they can afford where the value equation makes sense? I think that's going to be important. And it's a two-way street. I think there's responsibilities on both ends there for making sure this is part of your strategy, making sure this is on your board of importance, because nobody wants to be put into the position where now you have a compounding tragedy at your organization. And it's, it's too little too late. It's, well, we should have done this. We should have done that. 
That's a very cavalier attitude. And we need to think about, have we done everything we can today to protect our patients from harm? In the pharmacy department, sterile compounding is where a patient could get harm if it's done inappropriately. And so incorporating that in, you're able to sleep at night, which is really important as well. And thinking that if you were on the other side, if you had a family member on the other side, how would you want your medications prepared? Those are some things that I certainly think about of what can we do to improve these practices? And some of it is just the train of thought of not seeing it as best practices, seeing it as standard practice and starting with the barcode scanner and and starting that continuum. And so for, for many organizations is where are you at today? Do we need our accreditation agencies more focused on this and helping organizations see where are you at on this safety compounding continuum? Are you at your level zero? You have nothing in place, all manual preparation. Heck, you might not even have a cleanroom suite. You may just have a segregated compounding area. Looking at your practices and say, how can we really help get you to safer practices? I think it's going to be an all in. It's got to be across the board. It's got to be accountability from the compounders, from the leaders, from the C-suite to the manufacturers of these types of equipment, to our accreditation agencies, to our standard setting organizations. I think it has to be across the board. You you mentioned in the intro about the New England compounding disaster. It's really interesting as you, you go through and you watch all the interviews and the things that occurred on TV and a lot of the things that are up on YouTube on that now, everyone in every interview is shaking their head and like, we cannot allow this to ever happen again. 10 years almost has gone by. It's, have we done that? Have we been successful? Have we put things into place to prevent that from ever happening again? And from my standpoint, I think we haven't closed the gap yet. I think we still have more to go. And what's unfortunate is that there are things that are available today that can prevent things like that from occurring. That, that's really from my perspective of what can be done, but really we, we need involvement from all fronts. I love your sense of responsibility for our patients. That's fantastic, Kevin. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our expert guest, Kevin Hansen. Please visit the ASHP Compounding Resource Center online at ashp.org for access to compounding resources for pharmacists and technicians, including best practices, guidelines, and regulatory news. And thank you, our audience, for joining us today. For the Future of Pharmacy podcast and for OmniCell, I'm Ken Perez. Thanks for listening. This has been the Future of Pharmacy podcast, featuring the innovators transforming medication management. Until next time, don't get stuck in the clouds. The Future of Pharmacy podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. 